Good morning, everyone. So good to be in the house of the Lord, with the people of the Lord, with the word of the Lord open before us, with the spirit of the Lord moving within us, guiding us in the truth of the Lord to the glory of the Lord. I hope you'll take a moment to make sure your cell phones are turned off. We don't want to have any distractions while we're trying to focus on this word that we were just singing about and that we want to spend time studying now. Those of you joining us online this morning, good morning. It's good to have you with us. We're glad that wherever you might be, you can be with us as we gather around the word of God this morning. So I encourage you to open your Bibles and get ready as we go to the word of God together. In his book, The Church at the End of the 20th Century, the late Francis Schaeffer uses an illustration to point out that no one keeps the moral compass that he himself has set. All, in fact, are guilty and in need of the grace of God for salvation. Now, as Dr. Schaeffer gave this illustration, it was originally intended to answer the question of what happens to those who have never heard the gospel. But the point that Schaefer makes in this illustration fits in well with the subject of the sermon that we had studied both last week and this week on the importance and the power of words. Listen as Schaefer tells the story. If every little baby that was ever born anywhere in the world had a tape recorder hung about his neck, and if this tape recorder only recorded the moral judgments with which this child, as he grew, bound other men the moral precepts in the end might be much lower than the biblical law but they would still have moral judgment so in other words every time in life if it were recorded where we said that's wrong that's right that's just that's unjust you're guilty and on and on it goes every time a moral judgment that we were made is recorded that's what would be is spoken that's what would be recorded And he goes on. Eventually, each person comes to that great moment when he stands before God as judge. And suppose then that God simply touches the tape recorder button and each man heard played out in his own words all those statements by which he had bound other men in moral judgment. He would hear it going on for years and years, thousands upon thousands of moral judgments made against other men. Not aesthetic judgments or judgments of preference, but moral judgments. And then God would simply say to the man, though he had never heard the Bible, now where do you stand in light of your own moral judgments? And the Bible points out that every voice would be stilled. All men would have to acknowledge that they had deliberately done those things which they knew to be wrong, and not one could deny it. He concludes by saying, we have two kinds of sin. We sin at one kind as though we trip off the curb, with, which overtakes us by surprise. But we sin a second kind of sin when we deliberately set ourselves up to fail. And no one can say he does not sin in the latter sense. Our God is completely just. A man is judged and found wanting on the same basis with which he has tried to judge others. Now, as I said in the original application, Dr. Schaefer wanted to apply this to those that have never heard the gospel. But I think it's fitting 
with the theme that we've looked at last week and this week, where Jesus is talking about the importance of words that we hear this illustration, which I think sheds light on the passage we will study this morning, which is Matthew 12, verses 33 to 37. And in honor of God and his holy word, I invite you to stand as we read this passage before we study it together. And the inspired and truthful word of God says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, in light of such daunting words, we bow before you now in your majesty, and we thank you for your mercy and grace. And we ask that you would lead and guide us now in these holy moments as your Holy Spirit, who has inspired these words, guides us in its understanding. Would you be our teacher this morning, that we might behold in a greater way the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. As we continue in our study in the gospel according to Matthew, and as the ministry of Jesus moves forward, we see that there is an ongoing conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. As we saw last week, that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to set people free from sin and death. He has come as the stronger man who has bound the strong man and is pillaging his house. With the result that people are getting set free from sin and death and the devil and destruction. And if you belong to Christ this morning, then you are part of the bounty that Jesus has taken from the devil and set free. Because he is the Lord of Lords and is stronger than any power in the universe. So I've seen that Jesus has performed another amazing miracle. A man born blind and mute, and he's been set free. And as we said last week, it was expected that the scribes and the Pharisees would rejoice. But the fact that they do not rejoice speaks more about them and their true nature than anything else. In the interaction that follows, Jesus has to warn them about opposing the Lord and the works of the Lord and be careful of how they speak about the power that is animating his ministry as the Messiah and the Savior. And so in part one of this mini-series that we looked at last week, Watch Your Words, we saw that Jesus warned the scribes and the Pharisees about how they speak, especially concerning the works of God, warning them that they cannot call the Holy Spirit evil and expect to escape judgment, that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is real, and those who maliciously speak against him cannot be forgiven neither now nor never. We're not talking here about the sin of unbelief because at the moment one believes that sin is forgiven. This is intentional, malitional, heart-hardened sin that calls evil good and good evil. They saw what Jesus had done. And they said he did it by the power of evil. 
and they were warned. Well, in part two of this mini-series, Jesus continues with a strong warning about the power of words and the outcomes that they bring. And so as you follow along in your sermon outline, we arrive now at our first major point, which is the fruit tells the story. The fruit tells the story. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Jesus, of course, is calling them to be consistent. Don't call something that was good that resulted from evil because the devil will not do anything that is ultimately good because he will not ultimately give any glory to God, at least not by his own will. Jesus has warned them in the previous verse about the, the, age, the present age and the age to come. Those were the two ages that the Jewish people believed in, that after this life there is an age to come with a judgment in between. So far, so good. That's, in fact, what we affirm as well. After this life comes judgment, and then we're off into the eternal state, either in hell or in the new heavens and in the new earth. But Jesus is going to use two images here, the tree and, by implication, the tongue. Both are used to indicate that, in the end, there are only two kinds of people, good people with good fruit and bad people with rotten fruit. Now, Jesus has already spoken of two types of trees earlier in Matthew chapter 7. And he said then, and he says now, that a tree produces according to its nature. So you can tell a tree by the fruit that it produces. A tree may look like one thing. It may give indications of being one thing. But you'll know what it truly is by looking at its fruit. And so Jesus, using that image is making it clear to the scribes and the Pharisees who were so opposed to him that they were showing their true nature by the words they were speaking to him and by what they were saying about his works. Which leads us to start with a question this morning as we consider our own selves and where we're at in the fact that we are all people of words, using words all throughout the day. And what's the result of those words? If the verdict were given of your life today, what type of tree has been your life? Is it the fruitful tree of the righteous, producing fruit and maturity and Christian dynamic living and edifying one another? Or is it a rotten tree of the wicked, bringing about dissension and division and destruction? And so it's good for us to live today, each day that the Lord gives us, in light of that day when we will stand before him and give an account for everything that we have done. For the fruit of our lives will reveal who we truly were and who we truly are. Which brings us to the second major point this morning then, which is speaking from the heart. And the heart, of course, plays a very important role in the Bible in understanding who we are as human beings. The heart is seen as the, the control center where thinking and decisions and intellectual activity and feeling and willing take place. And so it's true that at the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. It is a place where our true nature is found. And it's important for us to remember as we continue in our text and look at the next point which says the snake still speaks. The snake still speaks. Our text says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Keep in mind, this is the, our Lord Jesus Christ who is speaking here, because these are hard words. You gang of snakes, you brood of vipers, 
It's the same language that John the Baptist had used when he addressed them earlier on in the gospel and in chapter 3 at the baptism that John was offering for cleansing and for forgiveness of sins. But with this strong language, Jesus is warning the scribes and the Pharisees against the spirit of anger and evil and bitterness and judgment that has overtaken them. And however you look at it, this is no compliment. Nobody wants to be heard that they are a brood of snakes. But it, it is the language of snakes and vipers and serpents that is often used in the scriptures to talk about the wicked. Just a couple of examples. Psalm 140 verse 3 says of the, the enemies of God, they make their tongue sharp as a serpent and under their lips is the venom of asps. Or Deuteronomy 32, 33 the, their wine, those that will oppose the people of God, their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. I don't think any of us want to put that on our business cards. But this is a common language of how the Bible speaks about those that are opposed to God. And what are vipers known for? Well, they, they, they have a reputation, do they not, of being subtle, of being sneaky, of being clever, of being creepy in their attacks. And that fits then with the behavior that Jesus is ascribing here to the, the scribes and the Pharisees who were against him as the ultimate servant of the Lord and as they opposed the other servants of the Lord, his people. It certainly fits with the nature of Satan himself, who in Revelation chapter 12 is called the great serpent or the great dragon who opposes the things of God. Clearly, Jesus, as he is confronting his enemies in this passage, he is bringing forth the idea that this spiritual war is continuing in the ministry that he has as he comes and introduces the kingdom of heaven, as he preaches righteousness, as he calls men to faith and repentance. And we see this ongoing spiritual warfare that is going on as, as they challenge Jesus who heals a man on the Sabbath. And he says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. It's seen in their accusation of healing a man who was born blind and mute by acting according to the power of Beelzebul the prince of demons, when in fact he's operating by the Spirit of God. It is seen in the words that Jesus accuses them of, that they are in fact a brood of vipers. It's seen in a passage we'll look at in a couple of weeks where evil spirits look for places to occupy, including human hearts. It's seen in the attempts of Satan to thwart Jesus from the beginning of all that Jesus wants to do. It's seen in how Satan is now influencing these religious leaders to oppose Jesus and to oppose his followers. They've already given the verdict of what kind of tree Jesus is. They can no longer, therefore, evaluate the fruit of Jesus' ministry with clear thinking. And what's interesting in all of this is though they are accusing Jesus of all kinds of things, particularly of operating according to evil forces, they do not realize that they're acting in lockstep with those who oppose the prophets of old those who put to death the prophets as they came one after the other. And in fact, now they're opposing the one to whom the prophets pointed, the ultimate fulfillment of the prophets. And so Jesus says that they're incapable of saying and doing good things because their hearts are evil. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks scribes and the Pharisees are animated by a spirit of evil. And my friends, we do well to consider what this means, that what overflows in the heart pours out of the mouth.
think of what that means. If a heart is full of hatred, guess what's going to show up on the list? Why do we gossip or slander or complain or judge or condemn or say hateful things or impugn motives? Because according to the word of God, those things are already in our hearts. We try to downplay them and we call them constructive criticism or analytical assessments. We turn gossip into the sharing of news. We turn criticism into helpful analysis of what's going on. Our judgments are simply incentives to improve. But the truth is that our words reveal our hearts. And that's sobering. And it's challenging. We live with ourselves throughout the day in different circumstances and different interactions as we talk to people in, in the office and in the school and at home and in the malls and on the streets. And what do we hear ourselves saying throughout the day? Because that reveals what's in the heart. And we'll return to that in just a few moments, but let's move on. If the snake still speaks, well, the saint shows the truth. The saint shows the truth. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Jesus makes it clear that good cannot come from evil, and he's warning the scribes and the Pharisees they, can, they cannot speak good things of God when in fact they are opposed to the things of God. They want the control. They want their ways of doing things to continue. They want their man-made laws and traditions and customs and ideas to continue, and they'll oppose anyone who gets in their way. And so Jesus is warning about the good person and the evil person, and he begins with the good person. Who is that? Well, it's apparent and clear that this cannot be the one who is still operating according to the sin nature, according to the flesh, according to that which opposes God. So it must be the one who has entered the kingdom of heaven. It must be the one who has come to Christ in faith and repentance and in whom Christ now lives and reigns as Lord and Savior. The good person is the one who is clothed in the righteousness of Christ, having been born again by the Spirit of God and having repented of his sin and turned to the Lord in faith. And the result then is that this divine transaction that has taken place now begins to transition, as it were, his heart, his mind, his way of doing things, his way of thinking, because now he meditates on the things of God. Now he likes the things of God. Now he proclaims the things of God. And those born of God's spirit, they've entered the kingdom of heaven. They're the ones who listen to the voice of God and who act accordingly. So the good man is the one who has the fruit of the Spirit, and as he meditates on the Word of God, and as Christ is producing his character in them, is storing up good treasures in his heart, and thus speaks with a newness and the freshness of his nature that has now been renewed in Christ. He's been transformed on the inside, and it shows up more and more on the outside. He speaks of the things of God and delights in God. The saint shows the truth, we contrast that with the evil person. Jesus said the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. This evil person is the one who is still in his natural order, 
as a sinner opposed to God. He's at enmity with God. He's called an enemy of God. In his sinful nature, he opposes God. He opposes the things of God. He hates the things of God. He's unable to respond positively to the things of God. As it says in Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Later in Matthew 15, which we'll arrive at in a few weeks or probably several weeks, Jesus will say that the heart reveals what is truly in it and that it is all kind of evils that flow out and make appearance because of the sinful heart of man. It makes it even stronger case when we realize that the word for evil here in Matthew 12 is poneros in the Greek. It's the same word that's used of the devil in many places in Matthew. It's the same word that's referred to ha-poneros in the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus says, deliver us from the evil one. That same term is used here for the evil person. So here we have the scribes and the Pharisees who have just accused Jesus of being in league with the devil. Now Jesus says that in fact, they're the ones that are evil and of the similar nature of the devil. And it's true of all those who are not yet in Christ. In their nature, they oppose the things of God. Their hearts are full of evil treasure. And what is heard on their lips is what is truly in their lives. And we've been around people like that where you can almost hear the, the hissing in the background with their, their accusations with their judgments, with their hateful statements, with their wrong conclusions, with their questioning of motives. You can almost just hear that accusing voice that goes all the way back to the garden. For the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart, which brings us then, after speaking from the heart, to our next major point, which is the weight of words. The weight of words. Notice that Jesus here begins with the phrase, I tell you. Whenever Jesus uses this phrase, it is a statement of authority. He is speaking from one who has the authority and wisdom and instruction and power and truth of God. And so when he speaks, we do well to take heed. We do well to hear. We do well to act upon. And what does he say? He says, they will all be weighed. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. And the first thing we see here is that Jesus believes in the final judgment. He believes in the day of judgment. Contrary to the popular thought of our day where people die and then they go to a better place. Or people just die and then their suffering is over. Jesus says, no, there's a day of judgment. And in fact, if people are not in Christ, they're not going to a better place. But to a place of eternal torment. If they're not in Christ, their suffering hasn't come to an end. It has only just begun. And so Jesus, even against the popular theme of the culture of his day and even ours, is saying, look, there is a day of judgment. Prepare accordingly. When all will appear before the judgment throne of God and all will be revealed about what we have said and done and thought and planned and hoped for, aspired towards. And on the judgment day, people will give account for every careless word they speak. I think it's probably true of most of us that we speak differently in public than we do in private. But all will be revealed one day. And social media has made it even worse because social media with its anonymity 
and its faceless interactions. People say and publish and do things online that perhaps they would never dare to say face-to-face or in person. And I think that somehow the anonymity of the screen will protect them from the consequences of what they have said, not before a holy throne of God. There will be repercussions for every word that comes forth from our mouth. And the fact that the eye of the Lord is in every place beholding the evil and good, as it says in Proverbs 15, the fact remains that whether we utter it publicly or what we think is privately, the fact that God hears it means it's all public. And it's all being recorded. And it's all being weighed. Now, I think what Jesus is referring to is not necessarily the the word games that we play, the the harmless fun that we have with jokes, whether it's, it's puns or telling a good story. Even in Jesus' life, we see that there's room for a good story, for a humorous account, probably even a well-told humorous joke. The point here is not to stifle all fun and, and sin in life. In fact, if we are filled with the Spirit of the living God and the fruit of the Spirit is joy, we should be the most joyful people around. We should love life more than anyone else around us. But what it does call us to here is to be serious and to recognize that we will all give an account and a reckoning for every word we speak. And let that sobriety then of every word and thought and intention and motivation and desire being exposed before God, like we saw in our opening illustration, it's all being recorded and it will all be examined. The careless word may be one that's just offered in an unreflected manner. It may be one that's offered that's an intentional manner. But in any case, it's a word that's better left unsaid. Every word that flows from our lips either brings blessing or it brings harm. Every word reveals the heart. I like the imagery of of Charles Spurgeon who says, that which is in the well comes up in the bucket. A good word reveals the faith in Jesus that takes root in our hearts and the Spirit of God is bringing about growth and maturity and obedience and hope and vibrancy and life-affirming words and encouragement. But an evil heart is not listening to the voice of God, not obeying it as he should, and so he's not going to be looking for how Jesus is operating in other places and will be quick to spout forth something evil or harmful or wicked, or judgmental. As the Apostle Paul was writing to the Church of Rome, and as he was giving his magnus opus, the the letter to the Church in Rome, and writing on the fact that all of us stand condemned before God because of our nature, and because of our sinful decisions, says this in Romans 2.5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's judgment will be revealed. It will all be weighed. It will all be brought before his holy eyes and holy throne. And there will be two eternal outcomes. For by your words you will be justified. And by your words you will be condemned. A tree shows itself in its fruit. Our deeds reveal who we really are. And so... We need to help each other. We need to encourage each other. We need to instruct each other that speaking without thinking has its consequences, that speaking without reflection is not wise, that speaking without proper knowledge brings division, that speaking with accusatory tone brings dissension and stirs division. 
speaking with malice intent brings harm. We can only produce from the treasure that is within us. And we see how much we need the Lord and His grace and His mercy and His truth and how we need each other and how we're commanded to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, sharing with one another the promises of God, encouraging one another in the truths that are in the Word of God, helping one another to overcome the acts and the effects of sin in our own lives. And we do well to remember that sometimes silence speaks more than words. Now, there's some dispute about who said it originally, and so I'm not going to try to enter into that argument, but the quote is well known that better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. This is just reflecting what God said to King Solomon long before in Proverbs 17, where it says, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Be careful how you speak about the things of God, about the people of God, because these words will bring justification, we are told, or condemnation. And so at that point we stop and say, wait, what? Justification? What does that mean? I mean, after all, we are children of the Reformation. If you're a Protestant, you're a child of the Reformation, whether you come from Luther or Calvin or Zwingli or Wesley or some of the others, all of the Protestants have come somehow from the Reformation where we believe that justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. And at the moment that we believe, we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ and our sins are attributed to Jesus and we are forgiven. So what does it mean here then that we're justified? And I think a better way of translating this word would be along the lines of vindicated or shown to be right. We're showing that it was right to do it God's way, to walk in the ways of Jesus, to hitch our buggy, as it were, to Jesus and to enter the kingdom of heaven and walk with him. It means that the gospel will show that it's had its effect on our lives. And so as the steady scroll of our words roll before a holy God, it will reveal who we really are. And if we're in Christ, it will reveal words that more and more reveal the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ, of love and affection for Him and for His Word, of love for the things of God, of building others up in the faith, of showing unity and, and holiness in relationships, of showing the fruit of the Spirit as those who belong to God. But, by contrast, if that steady scroll of our words reveals an ongoing pattern of things like pride and complaining and filthy expressions and judgments and outbursts of anger, it may show that we may have even confessed Christ, but it never reached our hearts or changed our lives. And so we go back and remember then, what did Jesus himself warn us about in chapter 7 when he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. They don't know it. If they don't show it, they don't know it. But Jesus is saying, if they know it, and they're walking in it, and they're empowered by it, they will show it, and it'll be obvious to those around them. The new birth in the Spirit of God brings about a change of behavior and attitudes and words and, and growth, never perfection. Perfection is not guaranteed for us on this side of the veil of tears. But growth is not only predicted, it's commanded. And there should be a pattern of growth that is taking place in our lives where we don't 
fall into the pattern of just the same old sins and the same old way and the same old places. The one whose heart has been gripped by the Spirit of God recognizes that he's not yet all that he will become, but he desires to become more like Christ. And so he'll cry out with the spirit of the psalmist in 141, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. He'll pray and meditate on the words of King David who said, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He will listen to the words of Paul as he teaches the church in Colossae and say, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. It is a spirit that takes seriously the words for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks and depends upon God through his spirit to produce that righteousness in us where we have lips that bless and exhort and encourage and lift up. So if all of this is true, and we know it to be true, how do we build up true treasure in our hearts? First of all, we acknowledge there is treasure in our hearts. Jesus has just said we produce from the treasure that's already in our hearts. So we start with a question. What is it you really desire in life? Is it the things of God? Is more and more Christ becoming the treasure that you, that you long for more than any other? Is it, following along what Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you? Or do we chase after the, the flashy things of this world that want to pull us this way or pull us that so we can get a certificate or reward or some type of acclamation so that we can look good or feel good and build ourselves up at the expense of others? It's good for us to hear what Jesus is challenging us with this morning. There was a farmer who planted two fruit trees on the opposite side of his property. The one he planted near the house to provide a hedge of protection and against an unsightly view of an old landfill, a garbage dump. The other one he planted at the far end of his field where it would provide shade to rest near a cool mocking stream that ran through his field. And as the two trees grew, they began to produce flowers and they began to bear fruit. And one day the farmer decided to gather the fruit from the tree that was nearest the house. So he walked over and he noticed that the tree, uh, the fruit of the tree looked a little bit deformed. Didn't have quite the symmetry that he, uh, he thought it might have, but it had the right color. So he went and sat down on his porch and began to peel the fruit and he bit into it and found it to be bitter and spit it out. So he cast it aside in disgust. And he looked across the field to the other tree by the mountain stream and he walked over and he grabbed some of the fruit and it was in great shape, and it was healthy looking, and it had the right color. And finding the fruits to be sweet and delicious, he gathered several pieces, went and sat onto his porch, and enjoyed the delicacies that flowed from this fruit. Both of the trees were planted. Both of the trees had roots that went deep down into the soil. Both of them produced fruit. And both of them were affected by the soil in which they were growing. The tree that grew in the landfill could only produce bitter fruit. 
but the tree that grew by the stream could only produce sweet fruit. And so here we are, as we consider the words of Jesus. Where are we planted? Have we put our trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, surrendering to him to be the Lord of our lives, the forgiver of our sins, the king of all that we do, the one that we aspire, and those roots have gone deep down into the word of God, the living stream of water that is now producing the fruit of the spirit that gives glory to God and edifies those around us? Or do we have roots that are still down into the swampy, seepy landfill of this world with fleshly pursuits and selfish ambitions and ignoring the cool, refreshing water that is available to us? The fruit will be revealed by the roots and the outward evidence shows what is really happening on the inside. So what are some ways in that we can produce the fruit that God is calling us to produce, that he expects to be produced in our lives? Let's, let's end with just a couple moments of pastoral counsel. These are very basic things that I'm going to give you. If I were to give you a quiz, you would have already put them down on your paper and know these are the things that you're supposed to do. And think about that. If we already know it, Why are we not doing it? So let's be reminded, okay? First one is prayer. Prayer. Is it your desire to be like Christ? Is it your desire to grow in the things of God? Do you really want to be more like Christ this year in 2023 than you were in 2022? If I look back at the pattern of your life, if I look back at the pattern of mine over the last 5, 10, 15, 20, how long? Is there a pattern of growth of becoming more like Christ? So we need to pray. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do you ask him for that? Is your desire to be like Christ? Is your desire to allow his fruit to just overflow in your life? We already know we're supposed to pray. Let's pray according to the will of God that we would be holy as he is holy. Secondly, we need to be in the word. My friends, there is no more important voice in your life than the word of God. How do we hear the word of God? We take up and read. And we read. And we read. And we read. A good brother in the Lord, Justin Peters, has a great ministry of apologetics and evangelism. And he goes out and exposes false teachers around the country. He suffers from cerebral palsy. But he is a man that is just full of the spirit of God and speaks the truth. And he says, if you want to hear the voice of God, read the Bible. If you want to hear the voice of God out loud, read the Bible out loud. Make the Word of God your top priority. Because all throughout this book, from beginning to end, there are commands to study this Word, to know this Word, to learn this Word, to memorize this Word, to teach this Word, to apply this Word. So be in the Word. But we know ourselves. We can be in the Word but we need more than that. We need to have the Word in us. We can't just let our eyes just pass over the, the black on white letters that are there or pass over the screen that we're following. We need to read. Maybe we need to read slowly. Maybe we need to read carefully. Sometimes when I'm alone, I read out loud if I can. We need to meditate. What is God teaching you? about himself in this passage, about sin, about salvation, 
How has this changed my life? And then start memorizing the Bible. We do a good job of teaching scripture memory to kids, uh, half a verse here and a whole verse there, but have we stopped doing that? Now, our, our kids didn't stand much of a chance because here I was a campus preacher and teacher and we we're in full-time ministry and we're at seminary, so a half a verse wasn't going to be enough or a whole verse. Nah, they were going to learn chapters. <laughs> and so we'd sit at the table and just read through an entire psalm and then another psalm and then another passage, and those minds would pick it up. And within a few weeks, they would have Colossians 3 memorized. Within a few weeks, they had Psalm 24 memorized, Psalm 100 memorized. We need to teach these things to our children and our grandchildren. We need to teach them to ourselves as well. Because as long as we have life and breath, we can still remember and memorize and learn. It'll take some effort. It'll take some energy. It'll take some persistence. But what do you want in life? I want to become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ through his word, through obedience, so that when the time comes where he calls me home, however he decides to do it, I want it to be as naturally as walking from this room into the next. Walking into his presence, having grown in him and walking with him and learning from him. I want his word to dwell in me richly. Lastly, let the spirit lead you. The Holy Spirit is the author of this book. You want to know what it means? Ask the author. Let the author lead you. Let the author instruct you to give you understanding, the interpretation, the power to apply it, the power to understand it. Use it in your prayer life. Pray scripture back to God. Let his word fill you and understand you so that each day you'll become more like him. Ask God to fill you with his spirit in an ongoing manner that you will understand this word more and more. These are simple things. But applied today and tomorrow and the next day and as a way of life, we'll find that over time we do know the word of God better and understand it better. And our hearts are more warm to the things of God. And people will start to notice that things are changing in our lives and our attitudes as the word of God takes root in us. And it'll transform our hearts. And since we speak from the heart, others will start to notice it as well. Now, I know as we come to the end of the sermon, we need to remember the gospel. We're in Christ if we have repented and believed. We're clothed in his righteousness. Our sins are forgiven, and we are secure in him. But from that firm foundation, he wants us to grow and to become more in reality and daily life what we already are in our position before him. And we also know that as we obey what he tells us, there is great joy and delight. But when we disobey, there's still the sting of sin that comes because of how we speak and how we act and what we decide to do. And so while it is true that in Christ there is no condemnation, let's not stop there. And let's say in Christ, let there be commendation to seek his approval and blessing and reward and joy as we obey him and pray and meditate on his word and let it come into our hearts because our lips reveal our hearts no matter how much we may pretend otherwise. Now next week as we continue in our study of Matthew, 
and we move on in chapter 12, we're going to see that the Pharisees and the scribes are going to ask Jesus to perform a sign. Perform a sign to prove who you are. And there's so much irony in that because he's already performed signs and they haven't followed. But we'll look at how Jesus deals with that demand next week as we move on. But until then, what are some lessons to take away from today's sermon? Because we know a tree by its fruit, we call on Jesus to plant his seed of truth and holiness deep within us. Our desire should be, I want to be like my Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to answer that prayer, and he will as we continually turn to him. Because our lips reveal our hearts, we will ask God to daily cleanse our hearts, and we confess our sins to him as he reveals them. If we are drawing closer and closer to the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be sins that we need to confess. The closer we draw to the light, it reveals the darkness that still has to be dealt with in our thoughts and our attitudes and our actions and our misunderstandings. Confession of sin and repentance then becomes a, a way of life. But it becomes sweet because as we confess and say, yes, Lord, you're right, I repent of that sin, and you receive the forgiveness that comes, the desires in your heart, or I want to please Christ and overcome sin. Thirdly, because our lips reveal our hearts, we will make hiding God's word in our hearts a daily practice and priority. Maybe it's a word or two. Maybe it's thinking about things you already know, but you just keep reflecting on them and allowing them to go deeper into your heart so that they'll reflect more in your lives. And because of the reality that we face judgment one day, we hide ourselves in Christ's righteousness knowing that it is only in Christ that we can stand before God. I pray that this week as we hear these words and as we consider what Jesus says, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, may it be the desire of our hearts every day to say, Lord, fill my heart with your truth. Fill my heart with your love. Cleanse out the garbage that needs to be cleansed. Thank you for a rich grace and forgiveness that is in Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that in the reminder of your word, that because of the reality of sin left to ourselves, we would all be silent before you on the day of judgment. But because of Christ, and our casting ourselves upon him and his righteousness and calling on him to forgive and cleanse us and hang on to us, we will enter your presence one day amazed that we're with you. But Father, we want even so much more than what we've experienced so far. The joy and the fullness and the hope and the fruit that you desire for our lives we desire to see be produced more and more in the lives that we have been given in the days that we still have. That we would not waste them, squander them, misuse them, misapply them. Because we would find that as we grow closer to Christ, we find a life really worth living. So Father, we repent. We've hung on to our own ways and our own things for too long. And we want to become more like Christ. So we cry out to you and say, continue to work in our lives to, to 
confess our sins, to cry out to you, to thank you for your lavish mercy. But now, Father, give us the resolve to know your word and to memorize it and to act according to it. And Father, with our eyes on the prize of who Jesus is, may this year be a year that we continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may each one of us become more and more like Jesus this year. And would you use us in each other's lives? Would you cause your spirit to be at work in us? And would it all be done for your glory as we gaze upon you, gaze upon our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.